Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Today's cool fact of the day is that when you yawn, your heart rate can actually go up as much as about 30%. Not very useful to know, but it's a cool fact. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. On today's show, we've got Adam Bornstein, author of Man 2.0, Engineering the Alpha. Adam's basically a biohacker and a solutions-oriented machine of a man. He was named one of the most influential people in health, and he's been a writer and editor for big magazines you've probably heard of, like Men's Health and Livestrong. And he's written four fitness books, including Man 2.0, Engineering the Alpha, which I just mentioned. But the subtitle is kind of cool. It's called A Real World Guide to an Unreal Life. Build more muscle, burn more fat, have more sex. I mean, let's face it, that's kind of a bulletproof kind of book when you get right down to it. I, I, can, I can do that. So I invited Adam onto the show today, even though he's kind of more elite athletics kind of guy and I'm high-performing executive kind of guy, more like how do I integrate this with life? Because his book actually does a really great job of explaining where you get the most leverage. 
And when you look at the Bulletproof stuff, you understand it's about how can I get the most impact from the least amount of work. And I thought that Adam did a really good job with engineering the alpha on that. Now, some of the things, Adam, that are in your book that that I'm hoping we're going to talk about today are things like make time for what's important and talking about hormones and even embracing your ego. So let's let's talk about those things as a way to start, but make time for what's important. What's up with that? Like, like let's just jump right in. Yeah, well, first of all, it's a, it is a pleasure to, to be here. We had kind of a, a song and dance making this happen, so I'm, yeah. I'm glad for the chance to, to talk. Uh, I, I think what kind of gets lost in the shuffle oftentimes, especially with, in terms of health and fitness, is that we prioritize our health in a way in which we set aside other things that really are important to us, but they end up falling by the wayside. And these can be anything from relationships to uh, finding time to go and do the things that you love, hobbies that you have. And oftentimes that your health needs to be a, a vehicle, if you will, to allow you to open up and do these things that you love so much. And really what we try and cover in this book is trying to provide the minimum effective dose that you can have maximum health so that you are able to go and, let's say, go and eat out with friends and and, and enjoy those meals or or find times for your hobbies or do things that you love at any age. A lot of this book is, uh, you know, we we said that it was a, a, I guess, a lifestyle guide masquerading as a fitness book. And that's really uh, what it was because this isn't about like how to become superhuman, although there's you know, information there that's going to improve aspects of your life. This is more about you know, how you can go ahead and eat and exercise and live in a way that you can actualize your best self. And that was the whole idea of the alpha. You know, when it comes to how we talk about alpha, a lot of times it's, it's kind of leader of a group. And that's not what we wanted to look at. This was all about becoming your, your inner alpha, and that was actualizing the best version of yourself, and then different ways you can go about and simplify that approach and how to make that come to life. So, one of the things that, that I've learned over time, in, at least in my own experience, is that most people are already superhuman. They just don't understand the things they're doing that are blocking that from expressing itself. Right. Do you buy that, or are you like not in that? You're already that. You're already there. Like, like, what's your perspective on on our natural state? I think our natural state is one that's pretty good. It, it, we do stand our best way because I'm a firm believer, actually, that it's the psychological barriers yeah. that are much more of a problem than the physiological barriers. I mean, it, there's genetics are going to play a role up to a, a certain extent of maybe the ease to which you can achieve some, let's say aesthetic base goals, but we're all given some pretty good equipment with this human body. And and it's just our job not to mess it up, or it's our job not to overthink it, or it's our job not to place these barriers in our ways. And that's what's happened over time. We get so much science, we get so much information that we try and synthesize all of it. And all it does is just confuse the hell out of us to the point that we end up trying to do 20 different disparate things that we think are good for ourselves, when in actuality, it's just actually making it one more complicated, which is creating stress, and stress itself is you know, just toxic to anyone. And then, and then two, we, we end up doing things that we, we don't necessarily need to do because uh, our bodies themselves or our minds are already functioning pretty well. So what we try to do is clear up really a lot of myths. A lot of this book was so much with myth-busting in a way that would kind of free yourself so it's like, listen, here's what you really need to know about eating or about exercise or about mindfulness or about lifestyle. And in this way, 
you know, you don't necessarily have to be worried about these 20 different things that you can do. So you can just kind of allow yourself to, to do what comes natural and, and feel better and look better. And uh, if, it, if it applies to you, even have more sex. Yep, there's uh, there's nothing wrong with more sex. Although maybe we should talk about that. Uh, I, I have uh, some unusual experiments on that front that I, I've talked about, but that's uh, that's something we can get to later in the interview. Of all the things you've learned, you know, being an, an editor at Men's Health and things like that, like what's the most important thing? If you you've got, I think, fifteen things in in Mantua, but what's the number one? If you had to just go through all of the advice in there and you picked one thing that that was kind of like the one, what would it be? So as, as an editor or just as a, as a one piece of information in in, in general, one piece of information in general, but as an editor, I I imagine that you see way more stuff coming across your desk than the average guy, probably more than I do even uh, with my weird biohacking, you know, set of interests. So I'm just thinking that, that you're not a doctor, but you have, You have just a perspective that very few people have because you're choosing what stories to run, what not to run. You know what people are interested. You see letters of the editor. So I, I imagine your vantage point is you're probably one that only 25 other people on the earth have something even similar to. So you've got to look at the world a little differently than the rest of us. I do, and it's it's. Uh, I guess it's the one thing that some people don't like about me, and, and that that is a lot of different things work. I mean, it is amazing that you get people who come to me from all different walks of life, whether it's success stories from individuals or whether it's doctors pitching different ideas or dietitians or trainers. And everyone, everyone, because we are this society of instant gratification, which I completely get, I mean, we all want to become the best version of ourselves. We all want to do it in the most efficient way possible. Trust me, efficiency is everything to me. We want that magic bullet. We want, let me just follow steps A, B, and C, and then I'm at the finish line, and that's all it takes. And the reality is, you know, there is trial and error with a lot of this stuff. That's why, you know, what you do is so important. There's, there's self-experimentation, and the self part is so important. You have to figure out at some level what works best for you. And anecdotal information is great because what works on one person or a lot of people can oftentimes work for you. There are certain rules of thumb. But this idea that there's only one approach to eating or to training or to living that that works just isn't true or that works for a lot of people. And I think that's hard for people to digest because a lot of times what works in one situation competes with what works in another situation. Like, wait a second, you're telling me that I can count calories, do everything down, you know, be extremely detailed. I can lose weight and, and look great or I can not counter at all. I can, you know, completely fly by the seat of my pants. I can have these rules and heuristics and, and still get to the same point. And I'm like, yes, you're telling me that I can completely abandon cardio or I can do cardio all the time and I can still feel great. Yes. And I think that's so difficult for people to accept because they, they, don't want to have to go through the process necessarily of, well, what is it that's going to work best for me or what is it that's most comfortable? And I think in my position, it's trying to find the ones that are most sustainable because a lot of different things work. So it's like, which one of these are probably most likely that people can do for a long period of time or more enjoyable or or great? And sometimes that does cause people to break down barriers. I mean, to give you an example, I remember the first time I would talk about bulletproof coffee with people and the barrier (laughs) was there with what you were putting into coffee. 
it was just, it was, no, this, this is impossible. This can't be good for me. Not to mention this can't taste good at all. And it's yeah. like, just, just try it. If you don't <laughs> like it, I'm not going to force you to drink this stuff. Yeah. You could take it intravenously. It's okay. No. <laughs> yeah. But you can, you might feel great. And not to mention, you might find that it's actually quite delicious. And, and I think that is the perfect antidote to everything. A lot of anecdotes that people need to just put down those barriers of these perceptions that have been perpetuated by what was put out in the media. Because I am I want to be part of the solution, but I'm also part of the cause of the problem that we've put out a lot of bad information that over time has gained so much steam that it is it's just accepted as fact. And we hold wow. this stuff as fact and it in you know, in order to break through these kind of these mental schemas that we have, you're undoing years of something that you just thought to be true which is really, really difficult. It's not different when you're trying to lose weight. It took a while to put that weight on, so it takes a while to undo it. It's the same thing with these concepts. So a lot of what I've seen, and there are certain things that even early in my career I put out that I look back that I was perpetuating things that just weren't true, and then you know, undoing that damage that's is a, very, very That's a huge admission, actually. You know, Coming from your career... Uh, to to be able to admit that and you know to just to kind of face it, that's pretty darn alpha in and of itself to be able to say, all right, I'm I'm going to undo the things that I did that were wrong, and it it's funny because I have dot release numbers like I come out of Silicon Valley, so you know version 1.0, version 2.0, I do the same thing with the bulletproof diet. Like over time, we learn more things, new studies come out. Like I I used to be a fan of palm oil and. I'm less of a fan of palm oil now because of what palmitic acid does to the the uh, the releasing of certain toxins in the gut. Okay, we didn't know that because the study hadn't been done. But now, all right, so maybe coconut's better than palm. Maybe it's a fine point and no one really gives a crap except well, people on the Bulletproof Diet who don't care if they choose the one that's more optimal and it costs them nothing to make that choice. It was like, you know, free money. So... The the nuanced things all the way up to the very big, you know, eat a bowl of granola and you know run around with skim milk, you know, <laughs> totally like like that was accepted. I grew up doing that sort of stuff when I weighed three hundred pounds. Absolutely convinced that it was you know I was doing it. It was good for me, and it didn't matter that I was hungry all the time. So keep keep that up, man. I, I mean, hats off to you for for you know being open minded and you know looking at at your position in the media as kind of a position of stewardship. I think that's really impressive and, and way cool. Yeah, I think, I think it's one of the things that we everyone could do. It's, it's very helpful to sit back and your job is to put out the best information possible, yeah. but you put that information out, you should always go back and not, not be afraid to question yourself because especially there, there's a huge social responsibility in, in what we do and that people will take this information and accept it as gospel. And if you're not making sure that something hasn't changed. I mean, park the ego because who really cares? What you're, what you're there to do is help people. And if I'm going to be too stubborn because I don't want to say I was wrong about something, I got into this business to help people. And if it's, I'm not going to say I'm wrong and then I'm going to end up harming people, am I, am I really being am being disingenuous in, ter- in terms of the, uh, the ultimate goal? So yeah, I mean, sometimes it's a tough pill to swallow, but like you said, new research comes out all the time. We try out new things. We learn new things. And the reality is that Alan Cosgrove, you know, has this great quote that we overreact in the short term and we underreact in the long term. Yeah. You have to, you know, kind of find that sweet spot where we can pace ourselves in terms of the information we have, 
synthesize and then apply that information in a way that people don't feel like they're just changing directions every five minutes. Yeah, that's got to be tough. I, I know I had a, a really amazing profile um, done in Men's Health Australia. So they had my photo and you know, the top six biohacks. And, and the wraparound ad was, was for a low-fat like food packaged product. So it, it was it was hilarious because like my nutrition uh, like thing, which was a you know, fat centric diet, was like eat a balanced diet. Like it had just been edited down just a little bit. I know that you had nothing to do with that one. At least I'm assuming you, you didn't. And I'm not upset or, or mad about it, but I just kind of noticed it. And I was like, what a tough thing to be in that position of having the tension of, you know, advertising and commercial interests, as well as, you know, not offending readers with an idea that's just so bizarre that they're just like, the credibility of the publication goes away. So it, it's it's just very interesting to hear your take on this. Is saying, all right, we're we're trying to take something that we did before, we're trying to change it now. What's different though now? Like in five or ten years now, are we going to be doing the same thing again? Is it like a slow sine wave of you know telling people to do the opposite of what they're doing forever? Uh, like uh, one quick story to that. What's hilarious is that the way ad buying works is that they usually hear about a a concept or a story idea and advertisers will want to buy inventory oh, wow. on that page. So they probably heard about you or had a cool profile, but really didn't look into exactly what your philosophies were, <laughs> but the advertisers going to, and I, I didn't have anything to do with, yeah. with that article, but the advertiser was going and saying, wait, this sounds really great. We want our low fat ad on this guy's page. <laughs> and then, you know, they're opening up this article. We, what? He's telling us to eat fat. Oh, somebody got fired for that. Really? <laughs> it's, uh, that is, it makes it even, even better. But in terms of where things are going, I, I think we're getting closer to not overreacting so much to things. We're getting to this, this place that uh, I do believe in terms of like the way that the research comes out is that uh, my hope is that we can kind of get to this uh, the phase style approach to, I guess, diet and training. What I mean by that is I'm not talking about you know, some crappy buffet of, of awful options. I'm talking about like, a, imagine if it was like just a, a gourmet buffet where, you know, the research will line up in a way that you have these three, four, five, six options that we know work and we can start digging deeper into those. So for someone who follows a higher fat approach or for someone who follows a paleo type approach or even someone who goes on a, like a, a higher carb approach and doesn't, you know, adhere to a certain, you know, thoughts on different types of food. Right, we can right. dig deeper into each one of those and understand, you know, the best way to apply. You know, I was talking to Brad Pilon, who does a lot of great research on intermittent fasting, and they're finally starting to look at people who follow an intermittent fasting approach, uh, the timing of meals, and, that, and yeah. literally the, the yeah. length of time that you can fast and then like the rebound of it and then in terms of getting these surges in testosterone and growth hormone. So now that we're finding out that this is a, a suitable way to go, let's dig deeper because I think so much of this, it's, it's funny, we feel like we're doing research forever, but so much of this is just still figuring out, well, does low carb really work? Does intermittent fasting really work? Yeah. Will creatine kill you? And you, we'll you go, you and that, <laughs> yeah. right, will it make you smarter? Will it heal your broken bones? And you start doing enough of this research that it's like, okay, at what point do we have, you know, the, the two main measures? At what point is this research reliable? And at what point is it valid? And we're starting to get to these points where these main concepts are valid. Like we have enough research to prove out, hey, this works. 
Now let's dig a little deeper so that we have the applicable science to it. And I think that's really where the next iteration, this wave that we've been going through, is because we would just we would just do shot in the dark where a lot of stuff was like the whole multiple meal hypothesis. How we have to eat six, seven, eight meals a day. There was never any research behind it. We learned about the thermic effect of food. And we learned that, you know, eating causes you to burn calories. So we just deduced from that, well, if when you eat, you burn calories. It must make sense that the more meals you eat, the more calories you're going to burn. So just eat as many meals a day as you can and you will be thin. And then you get people who eat 10 meals a day when it would be as big as a house. I'm like, I don't, I don't get it. I, I ate right, all this. Right. We had to actually test that out. And when it finally started testing out, like comparing three meals to six meals, they're like, oh, there's, there's no different. Or two to five. And you actually start doing it like, oh, it, it's more, you start looking at that, that, the macronutrient breakdown and then the food typing. And that was more important than the frequency of meals. But these were things that we didn't even test out. We just assumed were true. Yeah. It's really it's kind, really of, kind of, of amazing what PubMed and the internet have done for not just kind of citizen science stuff, the sorts of things uh, that I do, or you know Tim Ferriss or uh, Seth Robertson, like the long list of other people who are really focusing in on this. It's it's that you can take even from the position where you are, you can validate relatively quickly whether something works. And I remember in the very early days, like I'd go to the library. And, and like, you know, go through microfish and, and try and understand something. I'm like, oh. You're, you're, you're scrolling the little thing. As you're, it, yeah. Like, and like, it just doesn't, it didn't work. So to make, to make the studies and the information more accessible so you can read about it in the New York Times, you don't have to go somewhere to figure it out. You can actually go get the study and you can read it and go, oh, wait, this doesn't make sense. And then you can look at a variety of opinions relatively quickly. My hope is that that input from you know, the community at large is going to blunt the height and trough of that sine wave we talk about, about, okay, well, you know, this year this is cool, next year this is cool. And I think that'll have an effect even on journalism eventually. So I, I imagine, uh, like, recently the New York Times wrote a thing about red meat and, and heart disease. And it wasn't just those guys. But <laughs> and by the way, if you're listening to this, uh, we're doing, we're doing video. There was a big face palm on that one, right? And, like, I refuted it, and uh, I think uh, Rob Wolf did, like, a whole bunch of guys. I, I, did, it, I did as well, yeah. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. I hadn't seen yours. Yeah. So, so that's one of those things where, okay, we all knew that. But whoever wrote and published that, like, the editorial staff there, they have to have thought, like, well, wait. If this is the response we're going to get from from a big enough part of the community, maybe next time we want to be a little more cautious with our headlines. And I hope the systemic effect of this is going to be one of moderation so that the, the reporting on these things becomes better. Now, am I just like completely hopeful or is that actually going to happen? Because you're in a position I, to I, see. I hold this, this long-held belief that like we are going to return to, to an age of, of the golden age of journalism. And I, wow. I just hope that people are going to become – Tired of the people who try and take advantage of the benefit of the internet and just pump out content without actually synthesizing, processing, and thinking about that content. And that just might be a dream because I'm an editor and a writer and I know what time I put in and I know the time that other people put in. You know, I know Rob really well who sits and spends a lot of time on reading this stuff and, and you as well. And, you know, but I really don't know if, that, if that's the case because the internet is the greatest tool, but it's also the most dangerous tool. And it happens all the time. I mean, I don't know if I want to blame PR companies or there just has to be a different filter of who gets this information. You know, the red meat study was a great example. 
the you know egg yolks giving you uh, like prostate cancer, whatever it was. The recent study that came out that said that people who skip breakfast are twenty seven percent more likely to have a heart attack. Even though you know when you look into that study, one that statistic was completely muted when you actually compared you know on an unbiased level in terms of what statistic they were pulling out. Not to mention these people correlated with high likelihood of smoking, they drank alcohol three times as much, they didn't exercise at all. I mean, these are, you know, when you have these observational and correlational studies that have a whole bunch of confounding variables, we just jump to the salacious headlines so quickly. And it's the biggest issue that I have, because this is what causes people to overreact. There There is a catalyst for every reaction that people have. And... Uh, again, I mean, I, w- I would love to be able to stand up and say that everyone in the media is just absolutely wonderful about this, but a lot of times they get fed a, a tremendous headline from a PR company or the, the heart attack study with breakfast that was sent from the PR company at the folks at Harvard. And Harvard does lots of great research. I quote plenty of it, but I mean, uh, that was, it was just irresponsible to go ahead and put that out and not provide all the other details because there was plenty of information in that study that made it very, very likely that like the real takeaway is that people who skip breakfast are more likely to have other bad behaviors. And those other bad behaviors are probably what's correlated with heart attack. One of those bad behaviors is also old age, which just is, is one of those, it's one of those things that we can't just focus on what would make a great sound by what would look great on a headline or on a newscast. And that's the barrier that like we still haven't made progress on it. And if anything, it's gotten worse because people will embargo these studies, but will hold these headlines and get all excited that they know that next Monday I get to release this thing that will hopefully shake up the world. And next thing you know, you have a thousand different mentions of the same study. And you know, suddenly everyone is afraid of red meat again. There's this one piece of punctuation that seems like it needs to come back into vogue, and it's the question mark. Like, the thing in a headline in a major periodical that says red meat causes cancer does one thing. Red meat causes cancer, question mark, is going to draw the same readership to read the article, and then you can present a balanced opinion. I I don't think you're going to lose that. Why does this not happen? Like, do you have Uh an opinion or a thought there? Because people like to, because imperative, actually imperative headlines do work better. So do if you're going you to make that command, it's, you know, because people aren't uh, driven as much by curiosity as they are by fear. If you ask me the two greatest drivers of anything by people in terms of, well, in, in life, but especially in editorial, one's going to be greed, two's going to be fear. And if you can play off of either of these, and, and editors know that, you're going to take advantage because it's how content or how an idea becomes more, more viral. But uh, it's and just think about anything that you know has been published and like what people share and what they go about. Those two factors they are huge drivers, uh, two emotions that are very very strong in people. But it's again, I, I want to get to this age where people, especially with health stuff, just feel this social responsibility. And it's something that I feel that I never want to be wrong. But listen, I've been wrong a lot, and whenever I find out that I was wrong. The first thing I do is go back and be like, hey, the last 10 years I've been telling you to do this. Guess what? Funny story. I was, uh, I was, I was wrong. And I don't do that to try and be funny and I don't want to do it. But I do it because I do feel that I know people listen. And I know that I, 
I now work with a lot of different publications. So it's my job to make sure that I set off that almost reverse domino effect of let's push that out there. And if there's one thing that I can, you know, implore people on, I'm getting, I, for a while I taught at universities and I'm getting back into universities and, and teaching like the next wave of journalists. That's what I want them to do, to feel that social responsibility where, you know, people are going to read and consume your information a lot more if they feel that it's a trusted source. Yeah. And if they feel that yeah, and you're being authentic. And sometimes authentic is literally just saying that I was wrong or presenting new information. And we we can't get so uh, hung up on being afraid of being wrong. And that's why we try and do our due diligence to read all the research, to be more thorough. And in all honesty, if I I look back and completely honest with myself, I probably didn't go and read things or see as many sources as I could have that could have prevented some of these mistakes or even like not even jump into that conclusion. You know, I talked about, you know, something that's reliable, something that's valid. I I probably overreacted sometimes early on in my career, whereas now when I find something out, I want several studies to validate it. I want to go ahead and and reach out to several sources and be like, hey, I read this. What do you think? This is how I process this. So that I get enough information and I've dug in enough that if I'm going to go out there and publish something, I'm feeling pretty good that it's correct. And if it's going to be refuted or it's going to be proven wrong, it's not going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen five years from now when there's been enough research to reverse that claim as opposed to we see these headlines every single day. And that's what drives people crazy. One day omega-3s are fine. The next day it was omega-3s that was with the prostate. Uh, exactly. I, right. Omega-3s are fine. Now they're terrible. Like, but wait a second. We have, we have one study that's making one a very erroneous conclusion that it's completely out of left field going up about 10 years of, of research and, and multiple benefits of, of you know, taking these healthy fats. So we just need people to resist the urge to put out this content because there's more than enough content to go around. We don't just have to, to jump just because a new study comes out. Very, very well said. I want to shift our conversation a little bit more towards some suggestions. By the way, I would talk about this the entire interview because this is just fascinating. But I, <laughs> We've gone forever, yeah. Yeah, I, I know, though, that some of our listeners are really interested in, in some of your advice. So there's there's a couple areas where we really share a lot. Like, you know, you've got this obsession with eggs. I, I had a whole chapter in the Better Baby book on, like, how do you properly select an egg and then cook it just right for the maximum benefits? So... What's the, the short version? Why are eggs what they are from your perspective? Like, uh, it's, it's, To me, it's almost the perfect food. Unless you have an allergy to eggs, you're going to be hard-pressed to find something from a nutritional profile that is going to have more nutrients, a better macronutrient profile. It's going to be uh, satiating. It's going to leave you full. It's going to leave you feeling good. And it's just, I mean, that, that's the, the, the joy of food. I mean, like real food when you eat it, it takes care of all your needs. I mean, I'm fine with people who will go ahead and take some supplements and do that to try and optimize or fill gaps. But we have some foods that are just incredible in terms of what they do to your body. And then the egg, I'm one of those people who that if I know something is good for myself, I can talk myself into just consuming it because I know how good it is. But eggs also just happen to be absolutely delicious. You can make them in so many different ways. They go, they work in so many different ways and, and they're, they're cheap. I mean, one of the biggest barriers that people have in health is one, you know, you have that lack of understanding. You have a lack of trust. It's like one, you don't know things. Two, you know, you, you can't make sense of these things and you don't trust what people are saying. But three, there's always this cost barrier. People are always saying, well, it's too expensive for me to hire a trainer. It's too expensive for me to buy these foods. Listen, when you have 
something like this, which is so good for you, tastes good, works a lot, in a lot of different meals, and is that cheap, you're gonna, it's going to be hard-pressed, like I said, unless you have an allergy to it, to convince me why you can't fit this into your diet or even revolve part of your diet around it and end up living a healthier life. Eggs exist, and therefore everyone has a, a much better way to go ahead and eat things that are great. Have you seen the, the get some ice cream recipe on my site by any chance? I have not, but uh, now I can. We have to talk about this because it's, it's just right up your alley. Uh, I, I could not agree with more with you about eggs. They're one of the most perfect foods. So when I was working with my wife on restoring her fertility, I made this recipe. It's nine egg yolks and varying amounts, but basically grass-fed, unsalted butter, and medium-chain triglyceride oil and some coconut oil. You blend this up with chocolate, vanilla, whatever flavors you like. And the sweetener I use is a non-sugar sweetener like xylitol or whatever. But you blend this into this like incredibly like custard-like substance that you freeze in an ice cream maker. And it's called Get Some Ice Cream because an hour after you eat it, like you'll look at your partner and be like, let's go to the bedroom. And what's going on there is like an epigenetic effect from the environment that says there are, there's everything necessary to build a perfect baby. So let's go try and build a perfect baby. And it comes like from your biology up into your brain. So I swear it's more reliable than vodka in terms of getting some, which is why it's named that way. But it, it is like... The you, most- that should actually be the tagline. On, it should be more reliable than vodka. <laughs> That's actually a great marketing. I should do that. It's kind of funny, but like I must have made this... Oh, and sometimes I throw some lecithin in there, too, for, for other reasons. But I, I should have made this, uh, or I did make this probably five nights a week for two years when we were uh, reversing polycystic ovary syndrome uh, in my wife. And she just ate it, and we just got used to having eggs just omnipresent in such a high concentration, nine yolks divided amongst two people just for dessert. <laughs> but it worked. This works perfect for me because one thing that people know me for is I make the world's simplest protein ice cream in the world, which is just almond butter and a scoop of protein powder and almond milk, and you mix it up and you freeze it. Yeah. Uh, but this is even better because this is this has eggs in it, <laughs> and uh, I, I'm so used to eating this. I have to go and do this, and um, I, I'm in. I'm in completely. And better than vodka. Trademark that right now. <laughs> Slap it on there, and you're good to go. I love it. So it's a it's a recipe, but it's it's worth doing because you're such an egg egg guy. But there's an area where we don't agree so much, which is on cheat days. Why yeah. are you a proponent of the, I'll call it the Tim Ferriss four-hour body style cheat day where you just kind of eat uh, whatever you feel like one day a week? What, what's your perspective on that? Uh, it's interesting. So we, we wrote Engineering the Alpha. It was myself and, and John Romanello. And a, a lot of the, Roman as a lot of people know, a, a lot of the diet information was kind of a synthesis of my scientific approach thing and, and what Roman applies with his clients. And Roman has worked with thousands of people and had a lot, a lot of uh, results. Them. He he strictly, you know, believes in this. Uh, I guess this feast fast approach. I like cheat day. The, my personal approach to cheat days, and it's one that you know we tested out just for the book itself. More than three hundred people and saw great results with it. So I mean, I'm, I'm someone who's a believer in results. So if it, it works for people, I'm, I'm good. Slapping my approval. I like cheat days in general because of more of the psychological break that it gives some people from dieting. I don't want someone to be on a plan where they don't feel they can eat some of the things that they enjoy, that we demonize foods. I don't, I don't like that approach. Personally, I've gotten to the point where I don't have a, a scheduled cheat meal every week. I, it's more that you know, if I absolutely need to have something or I'm craving it, I kind of 
satisfy that craving. And the, the two sides of the fence that, that I stand on is that one, I do think it gives a, a great psychological benefit. And the way that Romans set up the diet when you have this feast fast methodology, it, it's that you're because you're following up with the fast, the caloric surplus that you create on the cheating day is mitigated or completely muted by the follow-up fast. The problem with that, and, and the issue that some people have, and it's one that I've experienced, and this is always being, I think, flexible with the people that you deal with, is that some people have food cravings that they can't control. And, and this is the area that when people binge or, or you know feast on and cheat meals like that, it opens up a whole bunch of floodgates, both from a, a hunger standpoint, you get that taste in your mouth, you want those foods again, rather than craving the healthy foods you want. And it also can cause other psychological issues with dependencies on food. So a lot of times, you know, there is this sliding scale, not to mention that I would typically recommend cheat dates for people who are a little bit uh, lower in body fat, people who are higher percentage in body fat, 20, 25% plus. Uh, it usually can be uh, counter-beneficial, if you will, in terms of just providing these cheat days right away. So I'm a believer in, in the cheat day because of the flexibility and because of the idea that you know, dieting, which some of you have this negative stigma on, you know, isn't bad. But I also, with many things, see how it isn't for everyone. But I, I wholeheartedly acknowledge, as we put it in our book, that it works for a lot of people, especially when it's followed up with the fast. And I think for a lot of people, that's the, the, the hard part, being like, I can eat whatever I want, and then the very next day, I'm not supposed to eat it all. That, that can be a difficult barrier for some people. It, it, as a as a base level sort of, is it better than what people are doing now? You, you cannot make an argument, uh, at least I don't know of a good argument that, that says like doing doing an approach with intermittent fasting and a cheat day, it's so far superior to just eating junk every day. So you've already moved the needle so far in the right direction. It's perfect. Um, and I, I used to do this. Um, going back more than 10 years, I would do a cheat day like on a Friday or a Saturday and finally figured out that some foods if you ate them during the cheat day, they caused so many like reverberating cravings that weren't necessarily psychological, but psychological, but were physiological, specifically gluten, where over time I started saying, well, if I modify my cheat day to avoid the things that cause the worst cravings, I have this willpower reserve that's left over after the cheat day, but I got the physiological benefits of, you know, eating some sugar or having a lot of carbs. And that evolved into the kind of quote cheat day that I recommend now, which is, yes, you have a lot of stuff and you know, you're trying to be relatively ketogenic, relatively low carb. So when you cheat, you know, you're eating enough sweet potatoes to you come out your eyes, but you're not necessarily eating things that are going to cause as large of a craving during your next day of fasting. So that instead of craving all day and looking at bagels and exercising willpower, what you're actually doing is you're saying, oh, you know, I, I recognize I'm fasting today, but but I just didn't get like the emotional punch that seems to come after like a junk cheat day. So it's a it's a nuance, and for every person, the list of foods that trigger that may be different. So it comes right down to well, do a, do it for a few weeks, um, exactly like you have uh, in your book, and then do it with some other tweaks. You know, don't eat eggs on your cheat day. Add eggs. You know, eat a loaf of French bread. Whatever turns you on, right? And see what you feel like over the next three or four days. I was shocked to find that the window for me was, was two days after. So like, I'd be, okay, Saturday, I'm going to do this Sunday. I'm feeling pretty good. And then Monday, I was just a total zombie and I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, maybe it's Mondays. And I finally realized there was just that 24 hour gap with no effects. So 
just pay attention. And I think most people will figure it out pretty soon. Like what is the ideal cheat day for them that gives them all the pleasure they want, but not necessarily all the downside that may come later in the week. I think that's very smart. And it's, it's, it's the approach that inevitably, like if I'm working with someone one-on-one that I take, that if you tell them, oh, you can't eat anything bad whatsoever, they, they, they start, uh, you know, just uh, from a psychological standpoint, it, it's overwhelming. It causes them to panic almost. And you want to take this step stool approach that if I had, you know, one rule of dieting, especially if someone's starting fresh or starting new, is that you want to give yourself like, one task that is, it's behavioral psychology, it's psychological change models. You want to give yourself a task that's so easy that it's like almost impossible to fail. And then you progress with that and you move on to the next, and then you move on to the next. And these are educational models that I mean, the things that we learn in terms of diet, you know, you can look at anywhere. Like if you look at, you know, in educational science right now, there's something, you know, Khan Academy, which is these like online lessons where people are learning. You're seeing how people like have these levels of mastery and then they're becoming smarter in terms of just not forcing them through this funnel where, all right, you need to learn this by end of week one, this by end of week two. No, wait till they master it and then progress. And I think. Uh, the, the cheat day was designed to allow people to master the idea that we want you eating healthy the majority of the time and you still have a little bit of leeway. And then by eating healthy the majority of the time, you do start to crave different foods. You do find a, start to find that you enjoy different foods. People always ask me, you know, how I have willpower or why I don't even like the times when I go and I cheat on foods, it's usually if I'm just out with friends or if it's a celebration and, and the willpower really isn't willpower. It's an adjustment of taste buds. I start eating all these things and then start cooking more and then start adjusting flavors. And I find like these healthy foods that I'm eating are delicious. We, we have this stigma that something that is healthy is just going to be disgusting. is going to be flavorless. Isn't, you know, there's, I can't remember what food it was. I was watching something with my wife and it, you know, it was like so delicious. It can't be healthy or something, some tagline, like that. And we have to get away from that because when people do start eating these things, it's, you know, eating healthy can be way more satisfying than, you know, these absolute huge splurges of, you know, calorie bombs that, you know, aren't doing your body any benefit. But I do think the idea of the cheat day is that like people just, they, they can't graduate to that idea of like, oh, healthy foods will be delicious. I need some of those things. It's just something that we dangle there. And then uh, get them to progress because, yeah, I know plenty of people that, you know, they were talking about some three, uh, phase three, phase four of the book. And maybe it became more of a hyper feed than a cheat day. Like you said, it's people like, I just ate, you know, a loaf of this or I had all these sweet potatoes and I made this crazier. They're making sweet potato pancakes and just going to town on those. And uh, more power to them because sweet potato pancakes are absolutely delicious. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, they, they're amazing. And sweet potatoes as, as a food source are, are phenomenal. Yeah, I discovered Japanese sweet potatoes about eight months ago, and they changed my life. For anyone who's like, listen, <laughs> they're more of a, a purple shade. Yeah, and if you you cook them, they just, they just caramelize in a different way than your traditional sweet potato or yam, and they are unbelievable. I have them straight out of the oven, or I take some, I mash them up, and I put it in the freezer for about an hour, and it becomes this frozen sweet potato goodness that. Wow, I, I don't even have words to describe. It's just that good. Just trust me. But I don't, I don't think Japanese sweet potatoes are in season right now, so you might have to wait a little bit because I can't find them at my store right now. Uh, you know, I've never tried the frozen thing. That's an interesting idea. I'm, I'm intrigued. It's good. Now, the, going back to that, 
uh, so so it tastes so good it can't be good for you. I think that's actually Kellogg's fault. You know, Harvey Kellogg, the you know, eat a bowl of of libido reducing grains, which is what the original Kellogg's you know, his goal in making his food stuff was to reduce libido because that was bad for humanity, literally. So when when you look at at that him and Harvey Graham the graham cracker guy we're both saying yep. we need foods that reduce passion in people I'm like ugh that that's the opposite of what I want but people associate that with being good for you and they know it doesn't taste that good like no one's got god I'm going to wake up I'm going to have a bowl of raisin bran I'm going to have like six raisins in it oh the bran's going to be so good no way but do I wake up and I'm like you know I'm going to have some of that bacon I cured myself and yeah like I wake up going this is going to be a good morning but I've gotten past that. You've gotten past that. You know, so good. If it doesn't taste good, it's probably bad for you. If it tastes good, it might be bad for you. But if it tastes bad, it's probably not good for you because your body actually knows what's what's really good. So there's that trusting of what's going on. Right. Now you talk about embracing the ego, and and in a lot of my work, I look at you know, the nature of the ego and where it sits in the in the brain and the biological systems. What's your take on embracing the ego? What's your take on using the ego as part of being alpha? Uh, it, it's all about the, the confidence in your decision making, and that, that's at the bottom line. I mean, ego—it's one of those fine lines where ego can spoil over so that you feel that you have this sense of entitlement, or you you condescend to people. And those are traits that obviously it's it blatant that no one likes those. But ego is important because our decisions, essentially and literally, are driven by ego. And if you don't leverage that to to really move forward and, and have, I guess, an unrelenting approach to the decisions that you make, the impact that you have, the ideas that you bring to the table, uh, people will never hear those thoughts. And I think we have a lot of smart people, we have a lot of self-empowered people who end up being held back from either achieving something on the, on the personal side that they want to uh, change or having an impact within a job or in a relationship because they think that ego is a bad thing. They view, you know, having confidence in their self or belief in their self or uh, staunch held belief that, you know, my, my idea or this approach is good or going against the grain is, is a bad thing. And, you know, we, we work, again, I, so much of what I do is, is psychological. We work on this approach of uh, positive reinforcement and that we have to take these steps and see that when we move forward and, and follow through with the things that we desire or hold ourselves in a certain belief, hold ourselves in this positive belief, it becomes self-perpetuating. That, you know, we end up having more success. We end up feeling better about ourselves. We end up having better ideas. We end up being able to take steps forward rather than being held back by this fear or this frustration that we can't feel that we're smart or we can't feel that we're capable or that we have to point to everything else in the world as the reason for our success or for our ideas. There's a psychological idea called the fundamental attribution error where everyone else's successes, we, you know, we appoint to something, some, something that they do or some attribute that they possess. And then our successes, we go ahead and we, we just, we pin on something else. So oh, I was lucky or I didn't do this. But, and yet we internalize our failures and the find, you know, prey to this fundamental attribution error, it, it kills ego, and then it kills your ability to become self-actualized, which is really what everything's about. Everything is about you becoming the best version of yourself, and you will never become the best version of yourself if you don't embrace your ego and view yourself a certain way and, and have a certain confidence and swagger that will allow you to make these decisions. And egos are, ego is also important in terms of 
even when you make mistakes. That's why ego is so important because you can hold yourself accountable and not feel like, oh, I'm the worst person in the world. I'm not capable of anything. You can bounce back from that and be resilient. So ego is important in terms of moving forward and also then not stalling, not allowing these barriers to stand in your way and, and, and hold you back. So you tie the concept of ego to, to being self-confident in, in the way you're using it. Got yes. it. Okay, that, that makes a lot of sense. The the nature of where the ego comes from is has been a, a big focus of what I do, especially with like the, the 40 years of Zen kind of training and, and like looking deep inside, but with a computer telling you when you're when you're deceiving yourself. And a lot of the the kind of fear and greed sorts of things are also tied to the ego. Right? So so the ego, at least in, in my experience of it, is an automated defense system that sort of keeps your meat alive. Like it, it's tied to your mammal brain. Right. And when when you look at, at that as a source of the ego, sure, self-confidence, you know, the ability to, you know, walk boldly in, in front of, you know, an audience of a thousand people and, and rock it. There's an element of ego there. And there's an element of ego control because part of your ego wants to run away and hide because you have stage fright. And the other part of your ego wants to look really good and pound your chest because, you know, you're in charge and you're going to get laid when you're done. You know, and, and, and all the things that go into like being a human, right? Uh, so it, it's really cool to to hear your, just your own words of that about what is the what is the part of the ego that you're engaging there around being self-confident? And yeah, it, if you're going to walk around being a, a meek, not self-confident person, you're allowing like the, the fearful parts of the ego to take over. And if you allow the, you know, I, I'm a total prick, you, you know, part of the ego mm-hmm. take over. So it, for me, it's, it's been a struggle of balance, trying to get the right elements of the ego where I want them so that I can perform at a high level, so that I can have a high degree of integrity, so I don't you know, try and hide my mistakes um, because I'm afraid of being wrong and, and all those. But it, it, it's one of the biggest challenges that I've come across uh, in terms of you know, being all I can be. And it, it was really cool to see that you wrote about that in your book as well and you know, how confidence is tied to that. Yeah. Uh, I think it's... It- a lot of times we have an idea of what we want to be. We have this you know, this pie-in-the-sky image of what we want, and yet we, we don't really look and we don't internalize how we go ahead and move forward and, and actualize that. You know, we'd be like, oh, I want to be fit. I want to make a lot of money. I want to have friends. I want to mm-hmm. have time for my family. But we, we don't think about it. And, and a lot of times it, it is taking that step back and learning to just process all the emotions and the thoughts and the feelings that we have, and then almost hack that. Hack well, what are the different barriers? You know, how, how do you be confident and yet not come off as a dick? How do right. you embrace all these emotions that you have and, and utilize them in a way that you know you're you're not pulled in six different directions and ultimately end up more confused. So, so it's. I think a lot of times we have a lot of these thoughts and these feelings, especially as men. I mean, women have them as just as much, but they they are more open to talk about them. Men have a lot of emotions and a lot of thoughts and feelings that they never discuss, they never explore because it's not viewed as manly. And yet, one of the most manly things you can do is hold yourself accountable and open up to these things and explore them in a way that allows you to master them and be okay saying that I haven't mastered it yet. Which is one of the hardest things. We all we all want to just be great right now. We don't want to admit those weaknesses, but oftentimes admitting those weaknesses will allow you to dig deeper and find out what you need to do to become better at them and then get to that level that you want. I mean, a lot of times, you know, the gap between 
uh, where you are and where you want to be is frustration. And frustration oftentimes is eliminated by education and just asking the right questions. And I think if more of us just ask those right questions, we can eliminate that frustration rather than having to put up this front that we've got it all figured out. That was about the perfect segue into the right questions because we're coming up on the end of our interview. And there's a question that everyone who's been on the podcast, except this one guy when I forgot, <laughs> um, has answered. And of all the things you've learned you know, in your career, in your life, in just everything you've done, what are the top three most important things you've learned about how to be more bulletproof, how to kick more ass? It doesn't have to be health, nutrition, any, any domain, anything at all, just your life lessons. What would you share the top three things with everyone listening? Uh, top three lessons. N number one is to uh, find someone who is doing what you, what you want to be doing. Hunt them down, whoever it might be. It could be a parent, could be a friend, and ask them questions. I, I really, really believe that oftentimes, you know, the, the greatest lessons can be learned by asking the right questions for people who are doing what you want to be doing and then synthesizing and applying to your life. I am... A, I love being a teacher, but I love being a learner much more. And the more that we are always learning, the more you're always going to be improving. And it, it's, it's the one thing that I'm, in order for me to be relevant even in this, if I ever get to this idea that I'm at the top of the mountain, I'm the smartest person in this field, that's the moment that I'm going to fall way to the bottom. I, I'm always, you know, finding people to ask questions of. So, so it's, it's finding people who have knowledge or have experience that you want and do it. Uh, number, number two is to, uh, to being bulletproof. I believe in dreaming and dreaming big. I mean, I, I, I don't believe that, you know, I don't think that the fact that we dream is an accent, just the fact that the actual physiological process of dreaming, I think it, it exists for a reason. And the idea of then dreaming about what you can aspire to be or what you can achieve is very important. Too many people settle in life because they feel it's the, the course that they're supposed to take, or that again, they put up these mental barriers and, Becoming bulletproof, becoming something great is about dreaming about being something great. So people have to almost set the bar higher than you think is possible so that you know what barriers you can push through. Because oftentimes the, the barriers that we create are just illusions. And we only know that when we set, when we set it too far and then we see what we are able to achieve. And uh, the... The third one to being to being bulletproof, I'd be remiss if I if I didn't say it. It's uh, it, it's exercise in some way, shape, or form. I, it's unbelievable. No matter what's going on in my life, when I when I get out and when I move, it doesn't matter if I'm lifting weights. It doesn't matter if I'm running. It doesn't matter if I'm going for a walk with my with my wife. The the actual the process of moving, and especially getting outside if you can, is it. It's, it has this uh, creates this sort of euphoria for me that you know it it releases this great feeling that I'm not going to tell you what type of exercise you need to do. I'm just going to tell you exercise in some way, shape, or form, and you will feel better. I, I I will always stick to that, and it's it's as simple as that. I don't need to bog down about fat loss or muscle gain. Just exercise, just move, and uh, and you'll feel better, and it, it'll. Oftentimes, I'll make you think a lot clearer as well. I do my best thing after I do some sort of exercise. That's awesome. Thank you for that really well thought out answer. 
Where can people find more about you? Tell us the URL for your book and stuff like that. This will be in our show notes and it'll be on the site and we'll link all over the place. But for people listening in their cars and whatnot, uh, give it to them straight. Excellent. You can find more from me at uh, bornfitness.com. That's my site. That's where I write about things like why you can eat eggs and not to be afraid of red meat because it's delicious and won't give you heart disease. So it's bornfitness.com. For the book, you can go to engineeringthealpha.com. And uh, you can find me on all social media stuff uh, at Born Fitness as well. Very nice. Thanks again for an awesome conversation. We went to all kinds of places I didn't realize we were going to go. It, it's really cool to hear the the back the back boiler room operation of publishing and to go straight from there into eating eggs. Love it. That's that's yeah. a perfect bulletproof interview. Excellent, Dave. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.